Hi, and thanks for joining us for this week's MEMcast. Today, we have Dr. Sarah Bell with us, who is a locum dermatology consultant at United Lincolnshire Hospitals Trust. And we're going to be talking about pemphigoid. And then later in the podcast, we'll be talking a bit about the differences between pemphigoid and pemphigus, which is something that I've found commonly comes up in the dermatology section of our MRCP written exams. Thank you, Rachel, for asking me to contribute to the Medicine East Midlands podcast for trainees to talk about some common conditions in dermatology. Today, I will discuss a disorder called bullous pemphigoid. Bullous pemphigoid is defined as an autoimmune subepidermal blistering disease, which describes the immunological driver of the condition, autoimmune, subepidermal, where the fault occurs, and blistering, which describes a predominant clinical feature. A look at the epidemiology shows that bullous pemphigoid as the most common immunobullous disease in Western Europe. Its reported incidence is 43 per million per year in the UK. It typically affects elderly patients, usually over 60 years of age, rarely children or younger adults. Its mean age of onset is 80 years. Bullous pemphigoid occurs equally in males and females. There's been some case control and population-based studies that suggest an associated risk for bullous pemphigoid includes neurological diseases like stroke, dementia, Parkinson's disease, and others. So let's look closely at the cause of bullous pemphigoid. Autoantibodies evolved in bullous pemphigoid are predominantly the IgG type. These antibodies, along with activated T lymphocytes, attack specific proteins that make up the adhesion complex of the dermal epidermal basement membrane zone, or otherwise known as the epidermal dermal junction. In other words, they attack the macromolecules which act to provide anchoring between the epidermis and the dermis so it sticks together and makes a watertight seal. The autoantigens, or the targets of the attack within bullous pemphigoid, lie within the dermal-epidermal junction, and they're called transmembrane hemidesmal proteins. And in bullous pemphigoid, they are the BP180, sometimes also called type 17 collagen, and less frequently, BP230. Now, once these are attacked, an inflammatory response ensues, complements activated, proteolytic enzymes are released and they destroy these hemidesmosomes and they cause a split and the formation of these sub-epidermal tense blisters. The etiology of bullous pemphigoid is poorly understood. There are some case studies that show association between bullous pemphigoid and certain drugs like frozamide, antibiotics, mainly penicillin. Non-steroidals have been implicated, sulfasalazine, neuroleptics, and the glyptins but the mechanism is unknown. Now, there has been more recent associations as well, quite interesting, with the PD-1 inhibitors, such as pembrolizumab, which is used to treat metastatic melanoma and other cancers. We sometimes see phototherapy-induced bullous pemphigoid in our psoriasis patients as well, which is interesting. Other triggers are thought to be injury or skin infection, and more recently, there's been some evidence about relationship with malignancy, although this was previously controversial. Now, clinically, patients may present with bullous pemphigoid just localized to one area or widespread. 
usually mainly on the trunk and the proximal limbs and frequently seen involving the skin folds. The patient generally complains of a severe itch and usually large tense bullet, fluid-filled, they can be cloudy, clear, or sometimes even blood-stained. And these can rupture and cause erosions, so you'll see a mixture of the both. Initially, the condition can present with non-specific rash, so the early pre-bullet stage, and this may look just like normal urticaria or eczema. So you may see clinically varying stages of the disease on the skin, but it is likely that your exam questions will show the classical picture with the tense belay or the large blisters. There are usually no constitutional symptoms unless there's extensive disease. And bullous pemphigoid usually spares the oral mucous membranes. However, you can see it in up to 35% of the cases. But again, exam questions about bullous pemphigoid tend to use this mucous membroid involvement to differentiate between pemphigoid and pemphigus. And I will discuss these differences later on in the podcast. Management of bullous pemphigoid includes referring to dermatology. And in dermatology, we may do various investigations and or just make a clinical diagnosis. But in most cases, suspected bullous pemphigoid is confirmed by a skin biopsy of a blistered site. And the histology will show a sub-epidermal blister with raised eosinophils. You may also see, interestingly, raised eosinophils on the full blood count. It's probably the one time that you'll be interested in the eosinophil level as it tends to get ignored in medicine. We also send a sample for immunofluorescence taken from non-bullous skin, and this will show IgG and C3 at that dermo-epidermal junction or basement membrane zone, and they may show you a photo of this in the exam of this fluorescent green linear line in that area. You can also go on to check indirect immunofluorescence in the serum by requesting pemphigoid and pemphigus antibodies in the blood. Other investigations are usually done as a preparation for treatment consideration. Treatment of bullous pemphigoid depends on the severity of the condition. So few of our bullous pemphigoid patients are admitted, and if they are, their disease is usually very severe and or resistant to treatment. We often drain fluid from the blisters carefully, not to de-roof them, but to use the blister and keep it intact as a biological dressing. Topical treatments are used, such as emollients for washing and protecting the skin, and topical steroids. For localized areas, say about less than 10% body surface area, the patient may only need an ultra-potent topical steroid for control, such as Dermavate or Clobetazole propionate ointment. More se severe disease will require oral cortical steroids. We tend to use prednisolone. We sometimes try doxycycline, which is a 200 milligrams daily for milder disease, as this has fewer side effects than the oral corticosteroids. If our patient's bullous pemphigoid is more severe, then we'll use oral corticosteroids at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day and adjust this dose until the blisters stop developing and then slowly wean down whilst adding in a steroid sparing immunosuppressant in combination. Antibiotics are sometimes used to cover for secondary infection and analgesia is given for discomfort. Treatment may be required for several years and most may resolve over time and others can follow sort of a chronic course or the patient may relapse. Overall, the prognosis for bullous pemphigoid is usually good. 
However, this depends on the severity of the disease and the resistance to treatment. Morbidity and mortality tend to be related to secondary infections, complications of the immunosuppressant treatment, or underlying an associated disease. So in summary, bullous pemphigoid is an autoimmune subepidermal blistering disorder. It's the commonest immunobullous condition. No doubt you will see a patient with it on the ward at some point. IgG is the autoantibody responsible, and BP-180 or BP-230 hemidesmosomes are the target. Once attacked, the dermoepidermal junction separates to form tense blisters or bullae, which is the predominant clinical picture. Management consists of a referral to dermatology, where we'll biopsy and confirm IgG and C3 at that dermoepidermal junction in a linear pattern. Corticosteroids, either oral or topical, alongside immunosuppressant agents and or antibiotics and emollients are mainstay of treatment, and the prognosis is usually good. So that concludes our discussion on bullous pemphigoid. I hope you feel more confident about this condition. Rachel has asked me also to discuss the differences between bullous pemphigoid and pemphigus, as this is an apparent a common question in the exam, and the names of these conditions can be confusing. So let's start with pemphigus. Now there are several different subtypes of pemphigus. However, pemphigus vulgaris accounts for three quarters of all the cases, so we'll focus on this one. Again, pemphigus is an autoimmune blistering condition that tends to affect now middle-aged patients. From our previous discussion, you now know that bullous pemphigoid has 10 blisters, making them less fragile because they're thick and they don't break, so you'll see them as they'll be intact. In contrast, pemphigus blisters are fragile, so clinically most of them will have ruptured to leave erosions with bleeding and crusting. If you do by chance see them, they will look rather flaccid. The fragility or thinness of the blister is because the split in the skin is higher up in the epidermis rather than at the dermal epidermal junction as in pemphigoid. So a split higher up in the skin produces a thinner blister. Pemphigus, also autoimmune driven, occurs when IgG antibodies attack desmosomal adhesion proteins most specifically desmoglene 1 or desmoglene 3. So the immunofluorescence of a biopsy sample will be seen in the epidermis and fluoresce green and net-like. Pemphigus vulgaris is also a predominant mucosal disorder and initial symptoms tend to start in the mouth, then move on to the trunk, flexures, and scalp. Whereas if you remember, pemphigoid, as we discussed, previously tends to predominantly affect the skin. And as I said, examinations like to use this difference in their questions. Pemphigus usually requires high doses of steroids in combination with immunosuppressants and most recently the use of rituximab to gain control of the condition. Pemphigus vulgaris is potentially fatal with a prolonged course and a mortality rate of 15%. Whereas remember, pemphigoid has a good prognosis and is usually self-limiting. 
Pemphigus and pemphigoid have very similar names. And a simple little trick that I used to use to help me remember the differences was to think of the pemphigoid as having an O and being intact like a blister, whereas the pemphigus has a U, which is broken and not intact. So yes, a bit silly, but if it helps you remember, then I've done my job. So just a quick summary. Pemphigoid, thick intact blisters, affect the skin mainly, elderly patients, good prognosis. Pemphigus, flaccid blisters, you may not even see them, so mainly erosions, mucous membrane involvement, plus or minus skin, middle-aged patients, and poorer prognosis. I hope this podcast has helped you with your understanding of pemphigoid and the difference with pemphigus. Good luck on your exams.